Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this Sunday, the 19th of November, 2023. It's good to see you all this morning. This morning, our pastor, Duncan Ryan, will begin a new series in Matthew's Gospel. Today, we'll be thinking about Jesus Christ's genealogy. And the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. And Matthew builds on this in the opening of his Gospel by revealing God's faithfulness showing that Christ's coming is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the son of David, son of Abraham, the long-awaited Messiah, the coming King. Well, let me add to Jonathan's welcome. Uh, My name is Duncan. I serve as the pastor here, and it's our great privilege to come together to hear God's Word. And we're going to read from God's Word now from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, please do look that up with me. Um, If you don't have a Bible to hand, those verses are printed in the inside page of the diary. Um, If you've been with us for the last number of weeks, you'll notice that we're taking a break from our series in Exodus. Um, I'm not promising when we'll get back to that, but um, uh, for these next four or five Sundays, we're going to work through the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And so that brings us to Matthew chapter 1, starting from verse 1 this morning. So let's read these words together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 
generations. Amen. This is the Word of God. Our Father, we come to Your Word acknowledging that it is Your Word, and we pray that we would hear Your voice. The things that we do not understand, we pray that You would lead us to understanding. But most of all, we pray that we would see Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. Well, if you watch any TV drama or film today, you can tell that the filmmaker understands their audience. And you can tell that because the opening minute has to be interesting. From the very first second, this thing that I'm watching, it needs to show me something that will keep me watching. So, the golden rule surely is whatever you do, don't be boring. But that's not always how it was in filmmaking. Movies have changed through the years. Now, maybe over the Christmas holidays, at some point, you'll settle down and watch an old film. And it can be a bit of a shock to be reminded of what these old films were like. Because very often, they did not start with an action-packed opening scene. They didn't get you puzzling about some mystery that was about to unfold. No, what was it that opened up a lot of these old films? It was the credits. For the first few minutes, the film's score would play, and what would you be watching? Screen after screen of names. Now, today we fast-forward that bit. Because we're not interested in who, the, who it was that colorized it or who the, the wardrobe technician was. We don't care about any of that stuff. We want to get on with the film. And filmmakers have learned that almost no one wants to sit through a list of names. Otherwise, they'll be bored before the picture starts. And yet we come to Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew sets out to write a book to present the most important and the most thrilling story that you will ever hear in your life. And how does he open up? What device does he use to hook the audience in so that they'll keep reading? A list of names. Forty-six named individuals in these verses some of them repeated multiple times. Now, to our 21st century ears, we wonder if Matthew has lost his mind. No one wants to read a list of names, and maybe that explains why your pastor was doing the reading today. (laughs) No one wants to read a list of names, but for Matthew's first audience, this kind of list wasn't boring. It was actually a huge part of how they understood themselves. So, as you see from the the very first verse, this is called a genealogy or a genealogy, a focused family tree that in this case traces Jesus' family line all the way back to Abraham, 2,000 years worth. And it was so important for Jews in the first century because, well, God had given the promise to Abraham that Abraham's offspring would be his people. 
the Israelites' identity was wrapped up in Abraham. It was wrapped up in, in which of the 12 tribes you belong to, which one of the 12 sons of Jacob was your ancestor. And so they took great pride in genealogies. And in Matthew here, he includes this list of names because it actually reveals a lot about the centerpiece of this story. It reveals a lot about Jesus Christ. It's in this list of names that right from the beginning of this gospel, some of our assumptions about Jesus are challenged and where we begin to see the true identity of Mary's son, Jesus. So we come to this and asking the question, well, who, who do you think Jesus is? Well, let's allow his family history to speak to us this morning. In 2009, the um, TV presenter Michael Parkinson revealed that he had agreed to be part of the TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, the show tries to trace a celebrity's family tree and uncover the interesting tales from their past. But following six weeks of research into Parkinson's family, the production team gave up. And Parkey said, um, I'll spare you the impersonation, my story was so boring they had to cancel the entire project. <laughs> now you could not say that about Jesus' genealogy here. Most of this family tree, you can, you can trace it through the pages of Scripture. You can find the stories that lie behind most of the names on here. But the stories are not just interesting. At times, they are scandalous. And that's the first thing that we've got to note when we read this list of names. It's that Jesus emerges from the complicated mess of human relationships. Jesus emerges from the complicated mess of human relationships. You know what it's like when, when we have inconvenient truths in our past, we find ways, don't we, to gloss over them. We find ways to speak about them that just doesn't draw attention to them. Matthew does the opposite of that in writing Jesus's family tree here. It's important for him to, to lay out this, this story of the origins of the Messiah in a way that tells the story warts and all. And we see, first of all, Jesus' family tree has elements in it that are a mess morally. Elements that are a mess morally. The first of those is when we meet Judah in verses 2 and 3. So Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. This is the tribe to which Jesus belongs, the tribe of Judah. But Judah himself was not a noble man. Jesus is a descendant of Judah's son, Perez. You see that in verse 3. But Perez and his twin brother, Zerah, well, they were the product of Judah's incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And, you know, Matthew goes out of his way to name Tamar here, as if he wants us to remember. This was a, this was a scandalous moment in the history of this family tree. You can read of it in Genesis 38. And then if you look also at verse 6, where we hear about David, the king, 
and how David was the father of Solomon. And again, here's another mother mentioned. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of, well, by the wife of David, presumably. No. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew, here's this thing, and if you wanted to just simply gloss over this, he could have said, you know, David was the father of Solomon to Bathsheba. He could have named her, but he wants to make this point. He wants this to stand out for us. She wasn't actually originally David's wife. She was Uriah's wife, remember, until David committed adultery with her and then had her husband killed, remember? These are real skeletons in the closet of Jesus' family tree here. And when we read these things, we think, well, surely this is not how it's supposed to go for the Savior of the world coming into the world. But then we see that Jesus' background is also a little bit messy, not just morally, but ethnically. I mean, you see, the whole point of showing off a family tree for, 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 for Jews at this time would have been to show off how good it is, how pure it is. And especially for a people who place such importance on ethnic purity, showing the cleanness of your family tree was a big deal, but not here. And we see that especially in the first three women who are mentioned. There are five women mentioned in all. In the first three of them, you see them mentioned in verse 3 and then two mentioned in verse 5. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, and there is Ruth. And they all have something in common. They're not descendants of Israel. They're not Israelites. They're not from that genetic pool. They were foreigners. And yet here there is no shame for them to be identified with Jesus Christ. I mean, Matthew could have left them out. You see, as we've read that, the genealogy is almost entirely here about the fathers, traced through the fathers. But Matthew goes out of his way to show us the mess that lies in Jesus' background. And in some ways, there's a comfort here, isn't there? The mess of human relationships is nothing new. It's all too real. And in bringing Jesus into this world, he is not ashamed to have that connected to him. In fact, here we're seeing that it's in the coming of Jesus that these things are redeemed. We'll think about that more as we go on. And we, we, we need to hear this. Because actually there's not one of us here who doesn't have some kind of complicated mess somewhere behind them. Some of us can tell of really complicated family trees where the branches join in unusual places and break in some painful places. But I mean, never mind that. What about the complicated mess we often make on our own? Well, here in Jesus' family tree is incest and adultery. But he can deal with that. He can redeem even that. And maybe you've got unspeakable shame in your own background. And even in this genealogy in Matthew's gospel, there's a cry for you to come, come to this Jesus. He knows how to deal with those things. And if we read through this, this gospel, or any of the gospels, they record that the life of Jesus Christ builds up to a particularly great moment. 
and it's his death on the cross. And that's significant because everyone thought that crucifixion was a ghastly thing. It was so deeply offensive in the first century. For the Jews, they would point to the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, that says, well, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so, yes, Jesus became a curse when he was crucified. The Greek world could see nothing but shame when they saw someone nailed to a cross. And in fact, the writers to the Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, and part of his suffering on the cross was the shame that he endured. Maybe you're here today. In fact, maybe you've someone who's been a Christian for many years, or maybe not at all. But one thing you know is that you carry with you some shame that reaches up from behind you regularly and won't let go. This genealogy says, look to Jesus today. The one who entered this world with a backstory that was full of shame and who went to the cross to bear shame on behalf of his people for anyone who will trust in him. Yes, in this genealogy is an invitation to the ashamed. It's an invitation to those who feel out of place, to those for whom life is a complicated mess. Turn to the Savior who has come for people like you. But there's another side to this genealogy. There's more than the mess of human relationships. It's a strange contrast that holds together. There is the mess of human relationships, and yet there is also a deliberate order to things. And so Matthew understands the history of Israel in three definite eras, and you see how he summarizes that all in verse 17. There is the period from Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, all the way down to David, the godly king whom God made a covenant with. And then there's the period from David to the exile, when the nation of Israel was conquered and the population taken into captivity. And then there's the period from that exile to Jesus Christ. And as you read those things in the Old Testament, there are some real highs and lows. I mean, the coronation of King David is one of the great high points of the Old Testament. God's people are free. God's people have been made into a nation. They're settled in their own land. They have security from their enemies, and they have a king who loves the Lord. And when we see those high points, we very easily see God's hand at work, don't we? We can, we can clearly trace that, well, God is fulfilling that promise and that promise and that promise. But from King David onwards, it's a story of decline. The great nation is divided. They turn to worship false gods, and they fall so low that they're conquered and the people are deported. It's painful to read. In fact, if you read First and Second Kings, it's very hard to follow. There's a chaos to that part of their history. And yet, Matthew is showing us 
that what appears to be chaos, humanly speaking, is something God is at work in. The genealogy tells us that Jesus' coming is clearly God's work. His coming is clearly God's work, and He shows us this in at least two ways. The first thing is there's something unique about the type of genealogy that Matthew records here. So, you might know that in Luke's gospel, he also has a genealogy of Jesus. You find it in chapter 3. But when you compare these two lists of names, there are significant differences. And you wonder, well, how can the genealogies be different? I mean, your family tree is your family tree, right? Has someone made a mistake? But actually, there are two different types of genealogies here. And Matthew he lays out for us the royal lineage of Christ. And so, even how he introduces that, um, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He wants to show us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of the king, the rightful king, the inheritor of the promises that God gave to King David. And so, Matthew's concerned to show us what the royal line looks like. It means he gives us more a legal line of succession that leads to Jesus. So, for example, there's a point where someone in Matthew's line is an adopted son, and he follows the legal line whereas it seems much more the case that Luke follows the natural biological line, we would say. So, Matthew excludes some generations from the genealogy. Sometimes he excludes a run of three generations of kings, um, but it seems he's got good reason for doing that. Because as far as God was concerned, they were illegitimate rulers. And when he's done all this, here's what it looks like. And verse 17, you see what's important to Matthew, don't you? He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's as if he says, in the mess of all of the history, look, God's fingerprints are all over this. And as you can imagine, there's lots of discussion about, well, why is the number 14 significant? And there's some very fanciful ideas. I want to offer you one that, I th that, that, that perhaps its biggest significance is that 14 is a multiple of seven. And I say that because seven is a very, very popular number in the Bible. And very often it has to do with God's completeness. Um, God rests on the seventh day of creation. The work is complete. Um, the Israelites march around Jericho once a day for seven days, and then on the seventh day march around seven times. Even into the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is described as the sevenfold Spirit of God. There's, it's, it's something that communicated a sense of completeness. And sometimes multiples of seven are used to convey that kind of thing as well. You read Genesis 1, there are multiples of seven throughout it. And so Matthew says there is a wholeness to God's plan, a completeness in God's bringing forth the Messiah into the world. And here's the thing with this. 
It's only discernible for us when we look back. I mean, at any point in this history as it was unfolding, it would have been nigh on impossible to see this pattern. But for Matthew, now that Jesus has come, he is enabled to understand and to see the Old Testament in a way that wasn't possible before. He sees it through the lens of fulfillment in Jesus. Now he sees how clearly God was working in all of the details, even in the messy details of their history. And it's the sort of thing that actually happened to the disciples. It's recorded in John 2, where Jesus speaks about how, tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. And everybody around about thinks he's ridiculous. How could you build a temple in three days? But John says they didn't understand he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then John says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. There were things that did not become clear until they could look back on them through all that Jesus had done. And that's the case here for the history of Israel as Matthew records this genealogy. There's something thrilling about that because it gives us confidence, or it's there to give us confidence, that for all the mess in our world and even in our own lives, it does not mean that God is not at work. I mean, think of the often repeated promise. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Um, Romans 8, 28 to 30. The genealogy of Jesus is there to give us a deepened confidence in these kind of promises. Because in all things, throughout the 2,000 years that this genealogy covers, God has been working to bring about the arrival of a man named Joseph who would marry Mary the girl who miraculously conceived the Savior, Jesus, and brought him into this world. That's what God has been doing, even in the mess of all of these broken relationships that crop up throughout this story. And yet, ahead of us is the fulfillment of that promise that I read from Romans 8. God is going to bring us to a particular place, going to make us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. He's taking us to glory, going to glorify us with His Son if we, if we belong to Him. Add into that some of the other promises of Scripture. God has promised that He will one day make all things knew that He will usher in a world where there is no more curse, no more sin, no more death, no more sickness, no more tears, and we look around at our world right now and we scratch our head and we say, I can't see it. I can't see where it's coming from. 
But when we read something like Matthew's genealogy, it gives us confidence to say that there's actually coming a day when we will look back and we will trace through all of the events of the history of the world and we'll say, look at God's fingerprints all over it. Look at what He was doing to bring about this that He promised. And I say this to you today, Christian brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when you will trace back over all of the details and all of the events of your life history. And even though you may be in a season right now where you say, I can't see it, we will say, look at His fingerprints all over it. If I might steal from Matthew, you'll say, look at these number 14s all over it. He really was working to fulfill His promise and His purposes in Christ. These words are to give us confidence that the promises of God stand even when all around us seems to be in disarray. But I need to finish with perhaps the simplest point that Matthew is making with his list of names. This is the royal lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew wants us to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised anointed King who would reign forever. And the necessary starting point is to show us that He is the Son of David. And so that's why he goes to the trouble of consulting the records, and particularly from, um, from certainly that th- third third of the genealogy, we, we don't trace that in Scripture. Much of that comes from the silence from Malachi to the start of the New Testament, but the importance of genealogies in this life where records were kept in the temple, so precious were these details of their ancestry. Matthew has gone to the trouble of consulting it all, recording it all for us, because he wants there to be no doubt that this is a son of David, and that for Jesus that is more than just a title. It is a declaration of authority. It's a declaration that Jesus Christ has authority over the whole world. It's a declaration that Jesus Christ has authority over the church. And it's a declaration that Jesus Christ has authority over you and me. It is a call then to submit to this Jesus. He lays out this genealogy to help us answer the question, well, who do you think Jesus is? He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who will come to restore lost sinners back to God. Now, we're left with a little bit of a conundrum, I suppose, having traced us all the way down to Joseph, we find that actually, having repeatedly said all the way down, the father of. So, if, if you, if you um, are of a certain age, you'll, you'll remember that it's all about begat, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, which is more literally the word there. I think other translations maybe get close, closer than what we have with he fathered. It's that idea. And 
all the way down. He fathered him, he fathered him, he fathered him. And then you get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It doesn't say Joseph fathered Jesus. So there's a conundrum that's left hanging in the air. Well, then how does Jesus come into this line? And the answer is coming in the next part of chapter 1. But here the Savior has come, born of a virgin, the Son of David finally revealed, and now revealed to us again as we've taken the time to read the boring list of names. And we thank God that we are enabled not to fast forward, but to slow down and to say, what has God been doing to bring Jesus to us? Who do you think Jesus is? Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you. We thank you that all Scripture comes to us as from your own lips. And even in these parts that instinctively we would struggle with, And so, Father, for what what little progress we've been able to make with these verses, we thank you. Thank you for how they have pointed us to to your sovereignty, your work in history, and your unwavering commitment to fulfill your purposes to redeem lost sinners through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, for help to trust in the great promises that come to us in Christ. That, Father, this record of your dealings throughout human history would give us confidence that you are no less engaged in our lives, even in the turmoil that goes on in our world right now. Oh, Father, we pray that this record would deepen our trust in you and cause us to marvel all the more at this Jesus who has come to save us. Amen.